0: Welcome to Solder Smoke, a podcast about wireless technology. We talk about everything from old-time crystal radios to modern digital satellites. We form a global brotherhood bound together by a common desire to understand, repair, design, and build our own electronic equipment, and by a willingness to help each other in our efforts to master radio technology. All are welcome. Now, please join us in the Solder Smoke. This episode of Solder Smoke is brought to you by Sierra Radio Systems. Check out their website, sierraradiosystems.com. Okay, good morning. It's Monday, February 28, 2011. And this is Solder Smoke 131. Just back from the Ham Fest, guys. I uh, was at the Winterfest Ham Fest here in uh, Fairfax County, Virginia. Sponsored by the wonderful guys at the Vienna Wireless Society. I'm a former member, I was a member of the, the club when I was back here 10 years ago, and it was uh, great to see many of the uh, many of the club members at the Hamfest, and I went over there and I announced on the blog that I was going to have a table inside, but then I realized I probably didn't have enough junk to justify a table, plus it was a really nice day, and I was in more of a kind of tailgating mood, so I made a switch at the end and uh, ended up out in the parking lot had a good day. I mean, I got rid of uh, I got rid of more junk than I acquired. You know, the problem with Hamfest is that you go there and and even even if you're going to sell stuff, you end up coming back with as much or more junk than you than you departed with. And we've been trying to lighten the load here at at N2CQR. So there was there were definitely some items there that needed to go. I uh, I did manage to sell the uh, the Benton Harbor lunchbox, the tour uh, that I had kicking around. I had this up on eBay for a few days, but nobody was taking it so the ebay auction ended just in time for this uh, uh device to head off to the uh, to the Vienna wire wireless uh, winterfest you know um it was a really nice tour in really good condition but i think you guys know why I, I i really did not feel bad about selling this thing you know the receiver let's face it it's a regen it's super regenerative but in its heart it's a regen and um I just, you know, my feelings about these uh, these kinds of receivers. So off it went. I found a very happy buyer. He got the um, the the tuner, he got the microphone power cords, and the uh, the vibrator power supply, and uh, and the manual. So he was he was quite pleased with it. There were a number of items that that went with me that I <laughs> I ended up keeping, and uh, partly out of nostalgia, well, and some of them because nobody wanted to buy them. Nobody was really interested in the uh, and the new Vista two meter converter that I spoke about a couple of episodes ago from Beaverton, Oregon. There were you know, Beaverton was a good selling point, and there were a number of guys that said, "Hmm, Beaverton, Oregon." And I thought they were getting close to buying it, but nobody wanted to come up with the uh, the fifteen or twenty bucks that I was asking for it. So uh, the the new Vista rig went back in the car. That's okay. It'll it'll uh, it, it'll be, it'll be sold at some point if I don't. Get the urge to turn it into something else, but there was another. <clears throat> sorry, there was another rig that went with me, that that came back almost purely out of nostalgia, and it's ironic too because this was a Regen. Um, it I think at the Kempton Park uh, rally in London, uh, during sometime during let's see, 2003 to 2007, I spotted this this old receiver. Probably underneath one of the uh, the benches there at the at uh, the rally, and <clears throat> sorry, and it's um really distinctive. It's got a wooden chassis. The guy made a wooden chassis. The, the thing must have been built, I'm guessing 1930ish. It's uh, two tubes. The tubes are missing, but everything else is there. Really beautiful old old parts from the UK. Really really great stuff. I um, and the thing is. My wife and I went out and saw the movie, The King's Speech, the night before. The Hamfest was on Sunday, and we were in the uh, the movie theater on Saturday evening, watching The King's Speech, the one that won all the Oscars last night, and in my my mind deserved them all. It was a great movie, um, but it put me in a real kind of um, British mood. a Real kind of, I had a burst of London nostalgia, and. I saw this little Regen that had been put together by a radio amateur in the United Kingdom sometime during the 1930s, probably at great personal financial sacrifice, and it was just sitting there. and it, it just seemed like to me that it that I should keep this thing. So, um, when the buyers came and they asked <clears throat> how much it was how much it cost, I found myself giving them some really ridiculously high prices. And then after a while, I just took the thing and. Stuck it in the back seat of the car. (laughs) So it's back here with me now. And it's, it's, you know, the thing is, it it looks really kind of dingy and dusty and dirty inside the ham shack. But out there with the sunlight pouring on it, it looked really good. And some of these these old parts and plug-in coils and and beautiful uh, reduction drive front dials really looked a lot better. So I'm going to keep this thing. And, you know, there's a slight possibility that it could cause me to go in to make to, to make another foray into the the perilous world of the regenerative receiver. I, I don't know guys. It's uh, this one I'm gonna have to take a picture of it and put it up on the uh on the blog so you can see what I mean. But um anyway, uh, I, I blame it all on the King's speech in Colin Firth and uh and the movie about uh King George the Sixth. You know this movie. I, I, I guess we're into a solder smoke movie review, but I really liked it, and there is some radio content, so I, I feel justified in mentioning it here. Um, it is, of course, about King George the Sixth and and his his speech problem, his stammer, and his efforts to overcome this problem. You know, his big problem was he had to speak on the BBC. It wasn't so much the uh, the live audiences that gave him a problem, although they were. Bad enough, but I think he really had a bad case of mic fright and was just horrified and terrified of the prospect of standing in front of that big BBC microphone and uh, and speaking to the entire the entire world, the entire empire. Um, yeah, I <laughs> one of the opening scenes of the movie they, they're showing you the BBC announcer, you know, the guy who comes on and says, "This is the BBC." With that great voice, while they show him, he comes out and he, he's dressed in a tuxedo. <laughs> and he, he's got, they have, the, some guy comes out and brings a tray of all kinds of special gargles. And he sprays, he's got this kind of aspirator thing, and he sprays some stuff in the back of his throat. And he spends a good two, three minutes getting his throat ready for uh, ready for broadcast. And then he stands in front of this huge microphone, great-looking microphone. And man, I tell you, I, I really... I said to myself, should I be doing that before I start the uh, the the solder smoke broadcast? Because the only thing I'm doing right now is I'm I have a cup of coffee over here. You hear me, hear me guys? You guys hear me occasionally taking a, taking a swig of the coffee. <laughs> That's about the only preparations I've been doing. Anyway, the um, they they showed a lot of scenes of the BBC transmitters, and I don't know whether this the, the, this part of it was accurate, but they showed you these. Huge control rooms with it looked like control panels for separate transmitters out in in Kingston and, and South Africa and all over India and all up and down uh, Britain and it was just it was nice. It was a you know a nice kind of a radio element to it. Last night in the Academy Awards, I heard one of the uh, presenters say something like uh, the good news is that the microphones have gotten a lot smaller. <laughs> i saw that as bad news i like those those big old microphones wow they made it really really dramatic you know we i, I just want to mention this i think this will be of interest especially to people listening from the uk you know we like i said we my wife and i both felt uh i mean real powerful waves of nostalgia hitting us as we watched this movie uh, many of the scenes in the movie were from uh, parts of london that we were really well familiar with and, you know, um, the, uh, uh, George VI, uh, one of his daughters, is, became Queen Elizabeth. And just shortly before we left London, I don't know if I ever mentioned this on the show, but um, my wife had a chance to, to meet um, Queen Elizabeth. And it was really, uh, in many ways, uh, the high point of, of her time, in London, and so, there we were watching the movie about uh, King George the Sixth, and there was portrayed um, this little girl with her sister Margaret um, sitting there in front of the fireplace with the uh, with the uh, with the little dogs they like, and uh, and it, it just uh, it added to the sense of uh, connection with uh, with uh, England that we uh, that we both feel. So uh, anyway five soldering irons for the King's speech yeah, highly recommended uh, with uh, with an element of radio content that will make it even more interesting for uh, for solder smoke listeners. Um, let's see what else we got here. Oh, all kinds of developments since the last podcast. You know um, right around the time that I recorded the last podcast and before I got it on the uh, fiber optic cable, uh, the East Coast of the United States got hit with a, a pretty bad ice storm, and it knocked down all kinds of trees and took out the power here at the house. We were without power for about 48 hours. It got really cold. Um, <laughs> the, uh, we, we discovered the uh, wood-burning stove in the house and and discovered that it was extremely useful in, uh, in this kind of uh, emergency, but it took us a while, so we were we were actually pretty cold here for a bit. Um, But, you know, every dark cloud has a silver lining. In Spanish, they say, uh, No hay mal que por bien no venga. And that is, uh, (laughs) when Billy was a little kid, he told me one time, On every face of happiness, there's a pimple of sadness. (laughs) Or something like that. Um, But uh, the the good part of all this was it forced me to get back on the radio and stop spending so much time on the Internet. Um, The Internet was down. The computer was connected to nothing and I I felt that urge in the morning to electronically connect so I I dusted off the Halicrafters HT37 the Drake 2B of course was already in position and I you know I brought I had brought that the, the old transmitter up on the variac a bit but um, it needed a a little bit more preparation I opened it up checked everything out applied some more contact cleaner And man, I fired that HT-37 up, and it's like like it had never been off the air. Everything worked perfectly. No problems at all. I immediately started working stations on 20 meters, getting really good signal reports. I talked to to a station in Italy. We spoke Italian. It was always great fun. But then I realized that I needed to be on a different band because I'm an early morning radio amateur. I'm up here at at 5 o'clock in the morning. And 20 meters is still dead as a doornail at that at that time. So I went out and converted my 20 meter dipole into a 40 meter dipole. Uh, it's really in the inverted V uh, configuration with the ends pretty close to the ground. On 40, this turns into something of a virtue because um, it it makes the antenna kind of NVIS, near vertical incidence. the The radiation is going straight up, and it's what they call a cloud warmer straight up and straight down, which gives me really excellent coverage here in the uh, in the northeast part of the United States. So just about every station I hear, I can work, and they usually come back and tell me that I've got a great signal. Now, I don't think this, this antenna configuration is the best thing for DX, but I have to report that I have also worked Italy on 40 meters with this cloud warmer antenna. So uh, 40, as Billy would put it, 40 rocks. Uh, <laughs> I uh I'm really enjoying it, and um, I, I get up early in the morning. I could always find somebody to talk to. There's even a lot of AM activity up around 7290, so I have fired up the HT37 on, on AM, something that I never did years before. When I was back here before, well, I, I, I never put the uh, HT37 on AM, but I dug out the manual and um, figured out how to do it without uh, straining any of the... Uh, the, the, any of the The circuits are blowing anything up, and it puts out about 10 or 15 watts of carrier, and I can get good modulation on AM, so um, I've gotten nice reports on on AM with it. Um, So all this, the the ice storm of of early February put us back in the boat anchor mode and uh, back on AM and back on 40 meters. So, uh, you know, I tell you, every dark cloud has a silver lining, and uh, this one certainly did. But you know, speaking of boat anchors, I I am now, you know, I, I think we all do this with our ham radio interests. We have we go through different phases and we switch back and forth between uh, different aspects of the hobby. And I am now definitely in boat anchor mode. Um, the old radios are, are out. I'm on the air. The the shack has more of a more of an odor of uh, of old tubes or valves than it did than it did before. Um, I'm now, I now find myself heading off to uh, to work in the morning, onto the train with with a few copies of Electric Radio stuck in my pocket. This is a, an amazing little magazine, about the same size as our beloved Sprat, but more focused on tube type stuff. And uh, so, I, I've got Electric Radio in my pocket as I as I head out the door. You know, guys, in it. It, it all came together. Sometimes the radio guides, you find them, they push, they're push, they pushing you in a certain direction. And the big boat anchor news, and I mean big in, in both senses of the word, the big boat anchor news here involves a Heath kit, a DX100. Um, longtime listeners will know that uh, it seems like every few months I mention on the program that I had a DX100 as a kid and, and somehow let it get away from me. This is the, uh, the rig that, that came up, this is the rig that they were thinking about when they first started talking about boat anchors, rigs that are so big that you could use them to anchor a boat, <laughs> and uh, the DX100 was the rig that they had in mind. I mentioned several times that I, I wanted uh, a DX100, and then all of a sudden I got a, an email from a listener. Uh, John K2ZA, and he told me that he had one for me, and that that he was going to bring it and deliver it to me. Because you know, when you're told that, when somebody tells you over the email that they have a DX100 for you, well, that's good news, but but it raises immediately the the question: How am I going to get this behemoth uh, uh, into my ham shack or to my ham shack? Because the thing is big. It's uh, it's it's a hundred pounds. You'll see various figures cited for how much the shipping weight was: 107, 110, 120. This is a hundred-pound rig, even without the uh, the packing crates. It's a hundred pounds. It's big. And uh, and John told me the story of his rig, and we're gonna we're gonna have a segment here because uh, John and I recorded a uh, an interview in which we talked about it. So I won't go into all the details here because John's gonna gonna tell us about it himself. But uh, let's let's pause at this point, and uh, and I'll play a portion of. Uh, of the interview because when uh, John and his uh, his lovely wife Erica came down to see us last week, John and when Elisa and Erica went out to walk uh, Capucho the Wonder Dog, um, John and I went off into the ham shack and um, fired up the uh, the solder smoke microphone and um, and recorded a little segment on uh, on the DX one hundred. So let me pause at this point, and uh, the next thing you'll hear will be uh, John Zaruba K two Z A. And I talking about the uh, the famed Heathkit DX one hundred. All right, John, we're on here. We're Excellent. on, in, we're on television. An old cassette recorder, and we're also on the uh, the Roadkill Tecra eighty one hundred. And we're look, we're showing the world here the new and improved solder smoke microphone with cassette tape backup and featuring duct tape. I'm here with uh, John Zaruba. Am I pronouncing the last name right? John Zaruba, K2ZA. Our very first visitor to the Solder Smoke Studios. I'm honored. Here in Northern Virginia. Well, we're honored. We're really glad to have you. John has come all the way down from New Jersey today to deliver to the Solder Smoke Shack this magnificent transmitter. John heard me on, um, on Solder Smoke lamenting the fact that I had a DX-100 as a kid, and that I'd let it go. It got away from me. And John's, um, John's dad passed away a couple of years ago, a year and a half ago or so, yeah. right? And John was looking for a place, a, a good home for a DX-100. And he sent me an email, and he said he thought it, would, it belonged in the, in the solder smoke shack. And I, I was really delighted. And so he brought it down today, and we've just been having a great day talking ham radio looking at rigs uh telling stories his wife and and, and my wife are out now uh, walking Capucho, the uh, the wonder dog and um we've been left alone here in the shack and we've we just took the DX100 out of the trunk of the car <laughs> with no injuries I'm I'm happy to report I, the last time I lifted up a DX100 I was 14 years old I think they've gotten heavier John what do you and think
1: we, yeah and we've both managed we'll both manage to work another day <laughs>
0: Well, tell us a little bit about the rig, John. It's got some history. I know it's it's, it's important to you personally.
1: Yeah, this is uh, my dad built the this DX one hundred in uh, the early nineteen fifties. Um, I was born in sixty three, so uh, this is some uh, some hearsay provenance. But um, uh, this was the probably third Heath kit he built after a uh, vacuum tube voltmeter that I think everyone starts off with, right. and a Heath kit oscilloscope and um uh, it's basically stuck with him it stuck with him his whole 50 plus years as a ham uh moved around to several qth's um i remember this this is was a fixture growing up uh especially on sunday mornings uh in in southern new jersey there used to be a group that met on 10 meters 10 meter a.m um called the hog wallow net and um this was uh, my dad's primary weapon on the uh, on the Hogwallow net, <clears throat> and it was it was an interesting group of guys, uh, mostly boat anchors, uh, the the occasional startup who would use uh, like an FT one hundred and one E or a TS five twenty that would that would do AM, um, but they would get on and drag chew for several hours on Sunday mornings, and um, it would. At the top of the sunspot cycle, it was not uncommon to get check-ins from Europe, Asia, you know, get VKs checking in. Uh, people from all over that would just hear these five or six guys uh, chewing the fat on 10 meters. And uh, they they were um, a really welcoming group. Uh, anybody could pop in and uh, and, you know, pull up a chair and take a turn on the net. John,
0: you, you, what, what were some of the locations? Was this, was this rig ever overseas with your father?
1: No, this was... Uh, this. My dad uh, built this right after he got out of the Navy. Okay. Um, so it was uh, primarily in Philadelphia and southern New Jersey.
0: Wow, it's, it's in really beautiful shape. The front panel is just really, really nice. And I see he's, he's done... I see your father had the knack. We can see signs of the knack here in the modifications and improvements that he's done to, to, the, to the DX100. And he's got some some really nice reduction drives on the driver and amplifier um, controls, and he's got a, an output for low power and high power. And I, I think our QRP fan uh, listeners will be pleased with this, uh, John, because you and I were just talking about the fact that some of the guys, some of the more QRP, uh, the QRP purists out there yeah. might not be pleased to hear that, uh, that solder smoke is going in the direction of a DX100, but there's a low power switch here, and I'm thinking that might give us some QRP options.
1: Yeah, I think, um, I think it does uh, 10 or 15 watts. Uh, if I remember correctly, uh, essentially what happens when you go to low output, you're just using the driver. Ah. Um, it's bypassing the final, so it may only be 5 or 6 watts.
0: Well, I got I got to tell you, I'm going to confess. The first the first move that I'm going to make with this rig is I'm going to put it in the high power position, because that's the whole point of having a DX100. It's to be among the tall ships on 75 meters and 40 meters. I I got my starting ham radio listening to guys who were using rigs like this on 75 meters up here during the the early, you well know, like the mid 1970s, and uh, I'm going to have to put up a 75 meter antenna, and this rig will be uh, will, will be shaking up the uh, the ionosphere here and uh, you know, the the AM sound of the Northeast. It's um, I guess it's a, maybe we should tell guys about it. It's a it's a um, it's a big plate modulated AM transmitter. I have the book here to tell us. Hold on to the mic here for a second, uh, John. Let's see. We'll, we'll read them some stats here from the Tube Type Transmitter Guide by Eugene Rippen. And it says here, the Heathkit DX100 was produced by the Heath Company in Benton Harbor, Michigan, in 1955. It covers 160 through 10 meters. It's got 15 tubes. It's got an RF output from two 6146s in parallel, modulated by two 16, 1625s in push-pull. 120 watts out CW, 100 watts of phone. Illuminated VFO dial and meter. You can switch from VF to one of four crystals. It's got a built-in VFO and power supply, and its shipping weight, 120 pounds. <laughs> and John, you know, John, um, John's dad was a, like we said, uh, somebody with real good electronic skills and uh, and the knack. And John has all the manuals with some uh, with modifications and all the stuff that his his dad did with this. And wow, it's a, it's a real. It's a real pleasure to have this thing here in the shack. I, I, I spent the morning as John was driving down from New Jersey preparing a proper place for it. It's kind of off camera here, but well, you can see a little bit. There's the the HQ100 receiver that I intend to hook this thing up with, and um, so we'll have that going. You guys can see in the background too up here. Those of you longtime fans, this is the uh, the Gong. <laughs> those of you who are just listening to the audio portion, of course, won't be seeing anything at this point. <laughs> but uh wow but I'm
1: I'm really happy though that um my dad was uh was a very giving kind of kind of guy and um uh my mother has gotten to the point now where the radio equipment she would like to see it finding new homes and I just couldn't there's certain pieces of equipment that were around when I was growing up and I just didn't want to you know, junk them or or sell them on eBay. Um, you know, there's a few select pieces that have gone to uh, gone to homes of of um, aficionados of of the various breeds. Uh, you know, my father was uh, was a devotee of the fire bottle, so uh, I'm I'm very happy to see that it's, that it's in a warm and welcoming home, and we'll see see life on the air again.
0: Yeah, it will, and I, I I'm really really I think this is a great way to to take care of you know. Old gear that you have a sentimental attachment to, and I promise you, we're going to give it a good home. We're going to have it on the air, and the other thing is, I, I promise. Uh, and some some of our listeners may be a bit dismayed by this, but I promise to talk about this old tube-type piece of gear a lot on Solder Smoke to give it a lot of Solder Smoke airtime.
1: As much as the two B. No, well, <laughs> let's be realistic.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, the, the two B's been with me for a long time. No, but I'm, but seriously, I'm going to talk about it a lot. And, uh, you know, so who knows, maybe sometime, uh, 10, 15 years from now, somebody will be listening to the solder smoke podcast and will hear this talk, all this talk about the DX 100 and it'll maybe bring them into a different, a different part of the hobby. All right. Fantastic. Thanks very much. And John, thanks again for, uh, for bringing that down. We have a video also of the, uh, the interview and uh, as soon as I figure out how to connect the video camera, uh, to the, uh, to the Linux computer, I'll get that up on the, uh, the YouTube channel, but it was, uh, it was a really a very very special uh, visit uh, for us when when John and Erica came down. It was great to meet them. I mean, it's it's great to get a DX100, but 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 really, the even better was to to meet uh, meet John and Erica. Very nice folks, and uh, very very glad they they came they came to see us. All right, let's see what else we have on the list here. I got to take a look at the uh, the agenda. We actually have an agenda, you know. Um, let me see. Oh yeah, I mentioned the I mentioned the reading that I've been doing on electric radio, and this gets us to the uh, the subject of the solder smoke microphone. I think um, many listeners should be quite pleased with the audio quality of of this show, because um, being a very democratically oriented. Uh, operation here, we have listened to the voice of the people. When I switched to the D104 last week, um, well, let's put it this way: um, the people did not approve. <laughs> we got we got more email about the use of the D104 than I think we've ever had on on any other topic here on Solder Smoke, and most of it was negative. I think uh, one listener, I think it was James Mitchner wrote in and it was just a a three word uh, message and it said ditch the lollipop <laughs> all right the lollipop is ditched we're back to the little uh, computer mic that uh, for some reason you guys love so dearly and uh, I have I have it mounted I'll get a picture of it I have it mounted on a on a long kind of shipping tube I've um, kind of replaced the um, popping filter that we had up on the top. Uh, I've played around with the settings a little bit. You know, I, I, I one of the problems I had with this mic was that it was, um, when, I, when I listened to it on, on Audacity, it was picking up a lot of hum. And I went through, listen, you guys, I went through all kinds of gyrations to get rid of the hum. And at first I noticed that I had no hum with the D104, but I had a lot of hum with this little mic. And I didn't like the hum. It just, I really just didn't like it, and um, so at first I said, okay, well look, it might be because the the hum is coming through the um, the little five volt um, g- current that's going up the the cable from the uh, from the laptop, and uh, maybe what I should do is power the uh, the microphone with an independent little nine volt battery power supply. So I made up a little power supply with a voltage divider to get it down to about five volts. And uh, had it all done. And, and that really wasn't it. That wasn't taking care of the power supply problem. But then I realized that it's probably just a matter of grounding. That, it, that, it, that with a little bit better grounding of the laptop, or grounding of the laptop, that the hum would probably go away. And so I, I figured out a way to, to ground the uh, I guess the chassis of the laptop, if there is such a thing on a laptop. But I got it grounded, and as soon as I got it grounded... The hum went away. Now I hope this. You guys aren't going to write in and say, "No, no, I can hear the, <laughs> I can hear the hum," but I don't. I don't see the hum as I watch the waveform go across here. The on the on the uh, the solder smoke screen. So uh, I think we've taken care of it. Anyway, that's where we are. Audio-wise, the uh, we're, we're using a new kind of old microphone, and um, anyway, we're um, we're that's where we are with that. This has all caused me to read about uh audio quality and uh i found in electric radio some really nice articles from around 1993 by a fellow named john staples w6bm and he's written a couple of really nice articles about entitled good audio and this is you know 4 a.m. of course but it it also is a lot of what he says i find myself well, I learned a lot from from John's articles about audio, and uh, uh, I, I read them, of course, thinking about. Um, it was a two part, yeah, two part article. One in May, issue 1993, and one in June 1993, both by uh, John W. Six BM. But he he, um, he starts with the basics, and which I guess I needed, and talks about microphones and waveforms and everything else, and he. He says here, um, let's see. Ah, yeah. He says here, when and here he's talking not about the internet, obviously, but he's talking about uh, uh, amateur radio transmitters. And he says here, um, your audio really starts with your own voice, which which I can't do much about. <laughs> yeah, right. Especially with the whistling that I have. So we'll begin with the microphone. I have heard wonderful audio from a dollar fifty Radio Shack Electret microphones. And lousy audio from improperly equalized $1000 RCA 44DX Velocity mics. It is important to emphasize the middle range of the voice without overdriving with the bass components. Without a roll off of the bass register below about 200 Hz or so, the lows in the voice will determine the modulation level. The remaining middle register will be weak in comparison, and the signal will sound overmodulated and bassy. In addition, many transmitters can't handle the lower frequencies without distortion. You know, when I read this, uh, a little bit of a light bulb went off. Um, one of the rigs that I was working on in Rome was a double sideband transmitter for 75 meters. And um, I was mostly focused on the RF... Uh, amplifier chain I was using it as an opportunity to to learn about RF amplifier design and I was going back and forth between LT Spice and the workbench putting together this um, um, this rig and well I didn't really pay any attention to the audio part of it and the result was very frustrating and I didn't understand at the time what's happening but I think John's article has made me, uh, has allowed me to understand what was going wrong. Here's the thing I had the whole thing set up. I knew that it was producing RF at the required frequency. I knew it was stable. Um, I could see on the scope and on the uh, SWR meter that it was producing a DSB signal. Uh, there was the carrier. Um, Carrier minimization was, was good, and uh, it looked like a good strong DSB signal of about three to five watts peak was coming out, and I could talk to almost nobody with this thing. Nobody wanted to talk to me with this thing. I would call them. The most I would get was, well, I can vaguely hear somebody in there, and, and, and I was dealing with signals that were, were really, really quite strong. So they should have been able to hear me, and they couldn't. And I think I know what was happening. I was, yeah, I was moving that uh, SWR meter, but most of the energy was probably in the very, very low frequency range, 200 hertz or below. And, of course, their receiver pass bands were not allowing them to hear any of it. So uh, I need I need to work on the audio portion of that transmitter. And I think once I get the, uh, the emphasis on the mid-range frequencies, I think I'll be I'll be in good shape. Now, of course, as many listeners have pointed out here on uh, on the uh, the fiber optic cable, we're in a, an entirely different situation. So I'm not going to mess around with uh, uh, with that here for the show. I think uh, if if everybody likes this uh, microphone, we'll we'll just stick with it. As a matter of fact, at the the Hamfest, in in one of the little boxes that I found underneath one of the tables, I found an exact Rep an exact the exact microphone that I'm using right now, and so for a buck I, I bought it. So I now have have a backup solder smoke microphone. So those of you who are who are really 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 uh, uh, fond of this mic uh, have no fear. We have a a replacement uh, <laughs> in the junk box ready to be pressed into service if necessary. All right, um, listen. This is a good time to pause, guys. I'm really pleased to report that we have a sponsor here it's sierra radio systems and uh, we're going to be they're going to be the sponsor for solder smoke for the next several months and uh, i'm going to tell you a little bit about them right now yeah now for a word from our sponsors uh, Solder Smoke is sponsored by Sierra Radio Systems, a new company out in Silicon Valley. I want to start telling you about it this week. So, Sierra Radio is going to be sponsoring the next few episodes of Solder Smoke. And as we, we go through these episodes, I'm going to tell you more and more about the company. We're really pleased that we have this company as our, our sponsor because it's a company that clearly has the knack. It's put together by two very fine business radio amateurs who, who clearly have the knack. And we're delighted with this opportunity to support our, our fellow radio amateurs in an, in an endeavor that I think will really benefit amateur radio operators around the world. Um, Sierra Radio makes repeater control systems and microprocessor-controlled TR sequencers for contest stations. But now they're introducing a new product line and, and that, that will clearly be of interest to the solder smoke community uh, and the entire kind of knack-afflicted uh, radio world. Um the new product line is called the HamStack and it's a family of microcontroller kits tailored to the ham radio operator who wants to learn how to build and program his own projects. You know, we've been talking about the microprocessors, the microcontrollers and 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 these amazing devices are finding their way into more and more rigs, more and more circuits and there's amazing things we can do with them and it's it's uh, I think it's really important that we that we get over our luddite uh, instincts guys and embrace the new technology and and Sierra uh, radio systems will help us all do that. going to tell you a little bit about the guys who are running the company. Like I said, they're both both they're, these guys are, are 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 like they they're definitely in in the NAC world. The John uh, KJ6K and George uh, KJ6VU. They're both Silicon Valley professionals. John has a Caltech PhD and he ran a very large research team before retiring. George spent more than 25 years in engineering and marketing at software companies that make tools for, electri- for, for electrical engineers, and uh, he's still doing that in his day job. Both have been ham since the early 70s. Um, they are very active in, in their repeater club, the, the Cactus Intertie. What a cool name. I, I had to look up how to pronounce Intertie I thought it was some strange foreign word, but no, it's intertie, and very appropriate because the Cactus intertie is the largest RF-linked amateur radio network in the world. Um, both uh, uh, George and John enjoy HFCW and QRP. Uh, George has built every Elecraft radio kit and then some. <laughs> These guys got together because their sons were, uh, were friends in elementary school both those guys, both those kids, are off, uh, off in college now, studying engineering. So Sierra Radio Systems, I think it's the perfect sponsor for for Solder Smoke. You're going to hear more about it in the episodes to come. If you want to learn more about it, we have a link to it on the Solder Smoke uh, blog. Just click on their um, their fine business logo. You can see it up there. It's got the Sierra Mountains. Click on it, and um, it'll take you right right to their website you can re- you can learn all about the new product line so again uh, welcome to sierra radio systems we're delighted to have you on board as as the solder smoke sponsor all right some odds and ends i wanted to cover here you know um i've got all kinds of uh, email and um, postings on the blog about the audio in solder smoke 130 and it was a bit unusual i admit it you know the uh, the D one hundred and four experiment, as I as I mentioned, it really didn't work out, and we're gonna follow the will of the people. But there were a couple of other well, one really other one other interesting thing that happened in uh, with the audio from Solder Smoke one hundred and thirty, and that was the uh, the QRM the <laughs> we we actually had AM AM radio breakthrough there at one point in the program, and I, I was really disappointed in this because I had I had really struggled to get that audio in good shape, and uh, it, it sounded fine to me. You know, I have tinnitus. My ears are, are ringing from a, from a bad day on the rifle range a long time ago, <laughs> so I, I, I can't hear a lot of the problems that, uh, that some of our other listeners can, can easily pick up, but I really thought that, that uh, the D-104 audio was sounding great, and uh, I, I recorded... One thirty in, in, in kind of bits and pieces. Sometimes I'll do these shows just straight through the whole hour, but other times if there's a lot of things going on, it'll get broken up, and I'll do uh, a portion of the program in the morning, a portion in the afternoon, a uh, portion in the evening. And um, I noticed that, and well, several other people noticed that. Uh, I guess you all noticed that. Uh, I guess about three quarters of the way through one thirty an am broadcast station started playing in the background now it, this i guess is kind of appropriate for uh, a um, a podcast uh, that's largely about amateur radio and i'm sure it it conjured up fond memories of uh, interference and uh, maybe maybe the uh, the uh, the 40 meter band with the shortwave broadcast stations playing in the background but <laughs> guys we don't really want this this is not really desirable it's not what we're shooting for here uh, certainly not on the internet you know the other thing i was I was wondering about was why it was intermittent I mean yeah I know that I have close by here within a mile or so of the house uh several a m broadcast stations their towers are are blinking away I always like to look at the towers you know you know we're we're radio fiends so these big towers hold a special fascination for us so I figured I'm picking up the a m from uh from one of these things, but why would it be, why would it be intermittent? And then it, it dawned on me. Uh, I think it it dawned on me when I was listening to another ham radio podcast. I was listening to this week in amateur radio um, and they were talking about an experiment involving an AM uh, broadcast station that was doing some DX tests. And as they went through the, the schedule for the tests, I was reminded that these AM broadcast stations Transmit at different power levels depending on the time of day, and I think they're um, they're they're um, at night they reduce the power level. And I'm I'm normally doing most of the the bro- most of the solder smoke recording here very early in the morning, and it's it's dark, so they're probably transmitting at reduced power levels during the night. Now, if I come in here in a few hours and try to record again. It's probably when the transmitters have been moved during the daytime, high power to, during the daytime to high power mode, and um, I'm more likely to get the AM breakthrough. Now I'm hoping that most of this has been taken care of by my expert grounding of the uh, the solder smoke roadkill laptop, but that may explain why we had the the intermittent um, problem with the uh, AM breakthrough. Um, <laughs> hopefully that's behind us. Hey, I want to read you guys something you know we had the uh the movie review and uh, last time I told you about this book that I'd been reading uh Men by Craig Nelson and there were a couple things in here that that really caused me to kind of sit back and just say wow one of them was that you know when they were talking about mission control and the young guys that were in in mission control running the Apollo 11 mission and how how much tension there was, the desire to get it right, the desire not to get uh, Neil and Buzz and Mike uh, killed on the moon. Um, You know, you talk about uh, high-pressure mission, the whole world's watching. And um, one of the things that they said they did in the mission control facility was that as they were getting close to the critical moments, they, um, they actually locked down, physically locked down, the circuit breakers in the mission control building, and they said that they would pref- they they would prefer to uh, to start a fire that could burn the building down rather than just have one of those circuit breakers uh, trip at a critical moment. <laughs> I could certainly certainly sympathize, and it just it just uh, struck me as uh, kind of interesting and, and odd that the uh, the engineers at mission control would make that decision to sort of just physically lock down the circuit breakers. I mean, we've all, I think, in a, in a moment, uh, done something uh, similar. You know, you you want to get the rig going and you don't have an appropriate fuse, so you just you put a piece of wire in there. You realize that it's not the safest thing to do, but you you got to get it done. And, well, the boys at NASA were doing a, pretty much the same thing there on, uh, on that day, I think July 20th, 1969. So I thought that was interesting. The other thing... It really caught my attention, and I'm going to read you this. I think we're in the fair use territory here, so uh, Mr. Nelson and his publishers wouldn't mind if I if I read this. They're telling a story about how um, uh, on the on the moon, Buzz Aldrin, one of his science missions was uh, to deploy a seismograph. They um, all all the science experiments that they were doing during Apollo 11 had to be things that could be set up very quickly because they really didn't know how long the astronauts would be out walking on the surface because they they thought that there was a possibility that they could get out there and very quickly discover something that would cause them to go back into the spacecraft. So the planners said that any of the science stuff that they did had to be kind of quickly deployable so that they wouldn't be, in effect, putting all of their science eggs in one basket they didn't want something that would take 45 minutes to set up when it might turn out that they only have 30 or 40 minutes on the surface so it all had to be quick deployment stuff and they designed this very ingenious little seismograph that buzz could put on the moon level and throw the switch on and get it get it working very quickly um anyway the the deployment went um uh very very well and um it said here I'll read it to you. This had to be set up in ten minutes. This was so late in the procedure in the procedures that Buzz, who was going to deploy it, had never actually seen a deployment. So I flew down to the Cape. I said, look, here's how you do it. You level it with a bubble level. You know you know what they look like. Line it up with an a gnomon. You know what they look like. And then there's a handle that looks like a cane. Reach under the handle and squeeze the trigger. It's going to start doing things. Now, don't move, because if you move, you'll bust it. It's going to start deploying solar cells all the way around you. And when it quits moving, then just back out slowly and go away. When he got back, he said, Oh, Lynn, that that was fantastic. I wish we'd had the television set up to see that. The device deployed about 30 feet from the lunar module and during the first night on the moon, the crew was sleeping before the takeoff the next morning, and the seismic station picked up something. They didn't think it was a meteor impact at a distance. It was something really close. So the science team called the mission control room and said, Did some relief valve just go off, or did some mechanical operation go on in the lunar module? They went down the line and quizzed every single controller. The last one on these surveys was always the flight surgeon. When they got to him, he said, Oh yes, exactly at that moment, Neil Armstrong turned over in the hammock. (laughs) I thought that was a pretty cool confirmation that the seismograph device was was working and indeed quite, quite sensitive. We've had kind of a... An outer Space Week here. You guys who have been watching the blog know that uh, I'm in one of my uh, kind of periodic outer space kind of moods or, or periods here. Um, we uh, the, the boys at spaceweather.com always provide some good kind of heads up information and um, last week they alerted us to the fact that the International Space Station was going to be flying over North America at uh, shortly after dusk, uh, um, most of the days last week. So I uh, I consulted with the uh, the website uh, Heavens Above, one of my favorite uh, websites, and got the precise times for the uh, flyover. And there was one that was really really good. It was 6:30 uh, at night, just about the time that I'm coming home from work and doing my uh, my bit to walk Capucho the Wonder Dog. I took the kids outside. I told a couple guys from work about it, too, and I gave them the times and told them where to look. And uh, lo and behold, we were out there. It was a good pass. And Maria was the first one to spot the International Space Station as it soared over the Washington, D.C. area. Really, really nice pass. It came up out of the west and uh, was really bright. It was red at first. And uh, we felt, I, I put up on the blog that we all felt a special connection to the space uh, station uh, because um, astronaut Mark Kelly's twin brother is up there, uh, up there now, and uh, we met Mark and his um, and his wife Gabriella at the uh, at the embassy in London when they came through after Mark's um, last uh, last mission on the shuttle. Mark's getting ready to back, go back up again, so um, we said we stood there and we told the kids from the neighborhood about our connection to uh, the people that were actually living up in that moving, moving star, as they put it. And it was, uh, that was all, all a lot of fun. It's always fun to see the, uh, see the, see the space station go over. Um, also on the, uh, the subject of, you know, of kind of things in, in outer space. Uh, you know, I, I a couple of weeks ago, I was reading again, uh, Mark Twain's, uh, Adventures of Tom Sawyer. Really liked the book. Just, uh, my, my wife had gotten me the, uh, the autobiography of Mark Twain it put me kind of in a Mark Twain on the path to on the path to Mark Twain, and I, I I mentioned last time I think that I was um, I think I mentioned this that uh, that Twain was really interested in um, in science and technology. Um, he he was friends with uh, uh, Nikola Tesla and with Edison, and we have up on the blog a, a a picture of of Mark Twain in Tesla's lab, kind of a really kind of cool. Knackish picture. You should take a look. We also have on the blog a um, uh, a video clip of a film of Mark Twain, uh, and the film was made by Thomas Edison. So uh, uh, Mark Twain was obviously moving in uh, kind of the cutting edge technological circuits of the day. Uh, circles of the day. He was also, I found out, an amateur astronomer, and he was really really interested in it. I have a quote up on the blog about how much time Mark Twain says he spends on um, reading about astronomy and studying all the details of astronomy and studying the stars. He was quite pleased with the fact that he was born um, uh, during an appearance of Halley's Comet and predicted that he would, uh, he would die during the return of Halley's Comet, which he, he did. <laughs> um, there's a really cool postage stamp put out by the Turks and Caicos uh, it shows um, Mark Twain riding Halley's Comet, and I couldn't resist. That's up on the blog too, soldersmoke.blogspot.com. So so check that out. I think you'll you'll like it. Uh, I, I have one other scientific observation to share with you guys, and uh, it uh, 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 the dog lovers out there are going to be be I think horrified. There's a guy in my office who's a real a real dog, dog lover, and, and when I told him what happened, he, he kind of rolled his eyes. Um, you know, we've got Capucho the puppy here. He's doing fine. Uh, Elisa just really loves the dog. The kids love the dog. I kind of like the dog. I'm going along with it. I'm trying to be, trying to be patient, um, and he's a nice little dog. Um, but we were having Elisa's birthday party, and we were getting ready to go out to dinner, and the plan was we were going to come back and and um, sing Happy Birthday and eat eat this chocolate cake. But as we walk, we we're walking out the door. I looked around and I said, "Hey, where's the cake?" And um, there's no cake on the table. The kind of um, the plastic plate that was under the cake is suspiciously off in the corner. There's a couple of uh, crumbs laying around, and uh, well, off in the corner there's uh, capucho kind of. Looking guilty and 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 licking his chops, <laughs> the dog ate the whole chocolate cake. This is not good for dogs. So we immediately went to the internet and were greeted with all kinds of warnings about how chocolate can be lethal for little dogs. So Elisa started to freak out and called the veterinarian. The vet made a quick calculation and discovered that well, capucho would survive, but the vet didn't warn us about the uh, the effects that uh a chocolate cake we'll have on a uh, Golden Retriever puppy. Um, you know, you remember those commercials where they say, you know, this is your brain, this is your brain on drugs? Well, it was like that. It was sort of like, this is your puppy, this is your puppy on drugs. I mean, that dog was wired. That dog, it, was like, it was like that old commercial, Ricochet Rabbit, the thing, you know, where he kind of bounces off the wall. All night long, this dog was running around, barking at everything, um, you know, running around, running around the house, up and down the stairs and everything else. I, I felt sorry for him, but, man, that'll teach him. No more chocolate cake for Capucho. Oh, man. But, I th- but he's doing fine, and uh, he's, he's, he's recovered, and he's back to normal. Guys, it's now time for... Sorry, Snowback. i love Indeed. Yeah, solder smoke mailbag. Um, a lot of good mail. Uh, Patrick uh, kf4lmz is on his second reading of Solder Smoke the book, and uh, he gives us some good news. He says that someone out there is trying to bring back the magazine Popular Electronics, Poptronics. may be coming back. All right. Thanks for that word, Patrick. We uh, we hope it's we hope it works out for whoever's trying to do that. Yeah. Um, our friend Farhan in India, we're glad to hear from Farhan. he didn't he didn't email to us but he posted on the uh, the bit x20 group um and uh he he was he sent out a message uh, about the benefits of having even a cheap uh, 15 to 20 megahertz uh, uh oscilloscope and how how useful that device can be i was just delighted to see a, a post there from Farhan, and uh glad that he's uh he's still engaged with the bit x20 group great um Another guy that we're always always glad to hear from is our friend uh, Jim AL7RV, and uh, he commented on the solder smoke audio. I think he was among those who kind of liked the D104 audio. Uh, Jim might have the same problems with his ears that I have, so that <laughs> might explain why we both like it. Um, but uh, he 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 notes that he's um, he's transmitting solder smoke from his um, his mobile repeater, and uh, as he moves around in the RV, he has uh, Listeners in the community uh, tuning in to solder smoke via the mobile repeater. He also mentioned that he um, he uh, he knew. uh, I I posted on the blog a web page of a guy who has built who 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 tells us how to build little kind of muffin fan based um, filters to get the uh, the solder the 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 dangerous elements of the solder smoke out of the air before we, we breathe it in. And Jim mentioned that he, he knew this guy from, um, from military days back in Thailand. So, small world. Um, you know, Jim has been really generous with me, and he sent me uh, many care packages with a large number of parts. And uh, I recently got a request uh, from a radio amateur in, in Mexico, Roberto, uh, a, a, a longtime listener and a frequent contributor to the blog. And Roberto needed some parts down there in Guadalajara, so I I knew that Jim would 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 agree that it would be a good thing to share some of those parts. So I took I took a small portion of the kind of the grab bag parts that Jim had sent me and stuck it in the box and it went off to Guadalajara. So Jim's act of kindness to me is uh, is is continuing, and uh, this is part of the whole share and share alike thing here that that's a big part of the spirit of uh, of ham radio. So uh, it starts out in uh, in uh, in Arizona or wherever Jim is, and some of it reached me in Italy, some of it reached me in uh, in London, and now now it's uh, down there in Guadalajara, and I'm sure Roberto is going to share it with somebody down there too. So thanks to you, Jim, and uh, and your your generosity is is now helping uh, another radio amateur this time in in Guadalajara. Hey, we got an email from Alan. Alan was one of the guys at the uh, the Marshall Space Flight Center Radio Club. Who was the who who actually picked up the signals from the lost nanosail d satellite, and he sent us a really nice email describing the adventure of uh, of participating in the uh, in the recovery of that lost little satellite. So I posted Alan's message up on the blog at SutterSmoke.blogspot.com. Uh, check it out. I think you'd, you'd really like to see his his email. And again, congratulations, Alan, and uh, well done in finding uh, nanosail d Sail D continues to sail over us, and uh, because it's 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 got all that kind of kind of bright aluminum there, it flashes. And the folks at SpaceWeather.com are running a little contest, and whoever gets the best picture of the um, of the D gets a um, gets a $500 prize. So you guys might want to check out SpaceWeather.com. And get in the Nano Sail D Photography Contest. Another contest going on I wanted to mention. You know, Jerry Ellsworth is running a contest for um, the uh, the best design with a 555 uh, timer. I have actually submitted an entry. <laughs> I have no hope of winning. But uh, a while back, you guys may remember, I, I used a, a 555 uh, timer to uh, control a camera that I sent up on a, monstrously big kite over the azores so i um i I sent that web page in and um i'm i'm i know it's probably not going to happen but i figured it might have been an unusual application of the 555 timer and i I sent it in but um i'm sure there's much more ingenious uh and innovative circuits out there so uh uh, if you guys have them i think it's there's still time to send in Entries uh, check it out. Uh, Jerry Ellsworth page is, has has intri- has info on the on the contest. Um, Robert um, AC8GE wrote in, and uh, he told me that he's been making some purchases through the Amazon link on our um, on our blog page. Thanks very much. Uh, that does help out quite a bit, Robert. We got a nice email from Wes. He's doing fine. Um, W7ZOI uh, wrote in, and uh, you know Wes, you're 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 so famous. When I I, I was at the uh, at the at the Winterfest Hamfest, I I ran into a, a, a fellow that you know, Ravi. And Ravi said he looked he saw the book there. He said, "Wow, you 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 know Wes, right?" And I said, "Yeah, yeah." I said, "I met Wes out in San Diego," and so uh, anyway, uh, we were talking about you at the uh, at the Winterfest, Wes, and it was good to get your email, um, Mark. Uh, Let's see. Yeah, Mark K6HX. Mark has the Brainwagon blog, which I like very much, and um, you know, Mark didn't follow the solder smoke advice. You know, he he chose not to uh, follow our recommendations, and he started playing around with regens, regenerative receivers. Guys, you know where this leads. Um, you know, it it's it reminds me of the whole cappuccino, uh, you know, chocolate story and. Just say no. <laughs> but Mark, Mark didn't follow the advice. He got into the regens, and he posted a, a blog entry in which he agreed with me that they are, in fact, possessed. Um, uh, you know, we got another shortly after. I got the uh, I saw Mark's posting about the, uh, the kind of diabolical nature of the regens. We got an email from Sean out in Nebraska, and he said he tried to build a regen. Um, and he suggests that, he says that what he got ended up being what he called half radio, half theremin. <laughs> I thought that was a good way of describing the regen. Half radio, half theremin. All right. You know, guys, don't feel bad because I feel myself kind of pulled in by the lure, by the siren call of the uh, um, of the regen myself. You know, and I, I have a, a, a tech. Little Ten Tech Regen Kit sitting over on the shelf, and I admit I occasionally power it up and see if I can hear anything with it. And I think I told you the story about how I have the uh, the ancient 1930s British Regen that I couldn't bear to sell at Winterfest, and may may find myself working on it sometime here in the future. So uh, yeah, I try to resist, but I know it's I know it's tough. Got a nice email from our old friend Jeff Ko7M. This is uh, the guy who was on, um, on Solder Smoke with us here a while back, and uh, he's, got a, uh, he's, he's the fellow with the Piper Cub. He's, he's got a new blog going. It's uh, ko7m at blogspot.com. Check it out. Good to hear from you, Jeff. Happy landings. Um, Dallas uh, KD7ORN uh, has been helping out with uh, giving me advice on how to solve my, my UPS battery charger problem. Um, thanks for that, uh, Dallas. Chris uh, KD4PBJ sent in pictures of the uh, of the Altoids factory out in Tennessee, in ch- near Chattanooga, Tennessee. You know, it just doesn't seem right. <laughs> the Altoids should be produced in one of the shires out there, in the in the home counties somewhere, somewhere in England, and. To say that the Altoids, I mean, I, like uh, nothing against Chattanooga, Tennessee, but it just doesn't seem like the appropriate place to be producing the venerable Altoids, curiously refreshing mints. <laughs> I always thought that was an excellent bit of British, that's the way Brits do advertising, it's very kind of understated, wouldn't want to brag, mustn't boast. <laughs> so the, the the ad is a curiously refreshing mint. All right, all right, thanks for sending that in, Chris. And I put Chris's pictures up on the blog. You can check out where the Altoids are, are now being manufactured. Armand, W-A-1-U-Q-O, sends regards from Richmond. And he says he holds me personally responsible for the recent uptick in Drake 2B prices in the secondary market. Sorry about that, Armand. you know, we've got all, I've told you, that's my retirement plan. Drake 2Bs and solid-state design for the radio amateur I'm thinking about forming a mutual fund. Uh, stay tuned. Uh, Hamilton KD0FNR. Ah, yes. Hamilton was the only guy who responded to my question about self-healing integrated circuit chips. When I was reading the book about the um, the mission to Venus, the um, the author Henry S.F. Cooper made reference to the fact that that the uh, the spacecrafts. Um, computers had developed problems apparently related to radiation damage, but the engineers were hopeful that the, the chips would heal themselves. Now this really, as a, as a troubleshooter, as a guy who does a lot of kind of repairing of old, broken roadkill equipment, I, this really obviously caught my attention. I said, holy cow, how does this work? How do you get a chip that repairs itself. I'm uh, vaguely kind of disturbed by it because I like troubleshooting and if if these um, radios and computers start fixing themselves well, it takes a lot of the fun out of it. Uh, what we got here, the, the response is and um, let's see and Hamilton really wasn't quite, quite sure about what's going on here but he sends in an email It says, radiation could damage transistors by breaking the crystalline lattice inside the semiconductor self-healing transistors run very hot so that when a lattice site in the semiconductor crystal is broken by radiation it is quote fixed by the crystal effectively melting around the broken site it's similar to your halogen bulb heat gun fix but on a transistor level and it's done automatically um anyway uh I think we need to talk about this some more. And uh, if anybody can can add to the uh, to the information provided by Hamilton, that's quite quite interesting. Um, we got some follow up email on the uh, on the Winterfest Hamfest from uh, Bert WF7I and Mark KJ4IEA. These 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 two guys drove in all the way from from UVA Charlottesville. You'll recall the the, the folks out there at uh, at the University of Virginia who are um, really almost um, unreasonably responsible radio citizens. They put up this wonderful rhombic antenna last summer, braving black flies and bees and humidity and everything else, only to discover that they had put it a little bit too close to a bicycle path. And then they took it down. Oh, man. That is, I mean, it makes the rest of us look bad. But, um they came out to Winterfest. These are the guys also who have the uh, probably the world's best location for a radio club. It's inside an old nuclear reactor building. I'm I'm dying to go out there. I told them I'm I'm going to come out and visit them probably in the spring. Um, but uh, they were there at the Hamfest. It was great to meet them. We took some pictures. I uh, I signed Bert's copy of Solder Smoke, uh, the book. Bert is look was looking for a 30s 1930s era call book, and he was unable to find it at Winterfest. But if any of you guys out there have a have a have a call book from the 1930s, uh, please let me know, and I'll, <clears throat> we'll get you together with Bert. Um, ah, we got some really interesting email from, from down under. Uh, Kevin ZL3KE wrote, you know, and and he he's 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 writing from Christchurch, and we were really um, really upset to hear about the uh, the terrible earthquake in Christchurch. We have so many ham radio connections to New Zealand that even though it's really far away, it it seems like it's just right part of the community. Um, And Anyway, but Kevin wrote in, and uh, he, thank thank God, survived the the quake. And he also points out that that his Drake 2B survived. Um, He said the quake knocked the 2B off the shelf, and it fell straight down several feet onto the concrete floor. And the only damage it suffered was a um, a broken uh, calp- cal switch, calibrator switch, which he was able to repair. He, he comments that, I guess, he said, I guess they built them right in Ohio in the old days. Yeah, Miamisburg, Ohio. And wonders whether his is the only Drake-2B to survive two earthquakes. Um, we don't know about that, Kevin. Uh, and we'll, we'll have to turn to our research department to find out if that's in fact correct. But uh, glad that you... It made it through the quake okay, and gosh, we, we hope for the hope that uh, Christchurch has a has a quick recovery. Uh, Alan V A three I A W also writes in from uh, from the Christchurch area. He uh, he listens. He's lately been listening from, from New Zealand, where he I guess he's down there on vacation, and he says that solder smoke comes comes in handy during uh, long drives and from and during the inevitable waits outside gift shops. Yes, indeed, we've, we've been there. Alan, we know what you're talking about. Not in New Zealand, unfortunately, but we've waited outside many a gift shop. And it is good to have something to listen to. Um, <clears throat> he's, anxious. he's enjoying New Zealand, but he's anxious to get home because he wants to finish. He recently got back into ham radio and, uh, and home brewing, he says, thanks to uh, Solder Smoke. He wants to get home so he can finish that HW8, HW9 kit that he started building in the late 1980s. <laughs> <laughs> hey Alan take your time what's the rush <laughs> you know after all this time a few more months you know you know what What the heck but anyway uh, the HW9 apparently is nearing completion Um, and you know he had some really good timing uh, he uh, he left Christchurch just three hours before the quake hit so um, wow thanks for that contribution from uh, from New Zealand Alan uh, thanks thanks very much and Hope it goes well with the HW9. Another email from Down Under, and this one I, I really found kind of surprising and inter- and and, uh, and kind of gratifying. Um, Peter Parker, VK3YE. I'm sure many of you know Peter's site. Peter has an amazing website with lots and lots of double sideband content. I mean, when I started getting into double sideband and I went onto the internet and Uh, searched for DSB and double-sideband. I kept coming across Peter's site. Peter is a true guru of the double wide signal. Um, And some really inspirational rigs there. He writes to tell me that he has, like me, has taken uh, double-sideband into the world of the weak signal propagation reporting system, Whisper. So he is on the air with a double-sideband Whisper rig, he made a very nice video of the operation, and I, I posted a link to it on the uh, on the SolderSmoke.blogspot.com. But but uh, hey, Peter, thanks for the thanks for the email, and uh, I'm honored to be uh, my my DSB work. Uh, I'm honored to have it uh, mentioned by the uh, by, by a true guru of, of double sideband. Finally, got a nice message from Keith uh, G6NHU. Um, he said he's been inspired by solder smoke to start building again. He's now working on an 80 meter trans- transceiver. He's put up a blog at uh, qso365.co.uk. This episode of Solder Smoke has been brought to you by Sierra Radio Systems. Check them out, SierraRadiosystems.com. The Solder Smoke podcast is produced once or twice a month using roadkill computers in an electronics workshop somewhere in the wilds of Northern Virginia. The podcast is available via iTunes and directly from our website, soldersmoke.com. Our blog, the Solder Smoke Daily News, is at soldersmoke.blogspot.com. Send email to soldersmoke, that's one word, at yahoo.com. Solder Smoke is listener supported, and there are many ways you can help keep the podcast going. Please spread the word. Let your friends know about Solder Smoke, the podcast, and our blog put links to the podcast and the blog on your websites. Buy a copy of the critically acclaimed book, Solder Smoke, Global Adventures in Wireless Electronics, available from lulu.com. Begin all your visits to Amazon via the Amazon link on our blog page. In this way, Solder Smoke gets a commission from anything you buy on Amazon. Buy some of our attractive Solder Smoke t-shirts, coffee mugs, and bumper stickers at the Solder Smoke store at cafepress.com. If you have a small business, consider advertising on the podcast or on the blog. Our rates are reasonable and our staff is friendly. If none of this appeals to you but you still want to help, well, we have a donation button in the upper left-hand corner of the blog page. However you choose to help, we thank you for your support.
1: Ciao, bravi ragazzi!